continuing on in our study, uh, just going verse by verse through the passages in 1 Peter chapter 3, and we'll finish up, Lord willing, chapter 3 tonight, and then again, we may not. Who knows? Looking at the notes, I know some of you are like, uh, we'll see, but uh, we'll give it a try tonight. 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to look in verses 13 through 22. I did want to say uh, on behalf of my family and our family out in Chicago, thank you so much for the many prayers, uh, the cards throughout the week. Uh, throughout the, the text, the calls. We've really uh, been able to experience God's grace this past week. Uh, and it's really great to know just having the family of God wrapped around you. And I just want to say thank you for that. That was really um, sweet and blessed. And I love you all. Thank you. It was really dear. Um, okay, we're done with that part. But I had to say thank you. I needed to. Um, when, when we ask ourselves the question... Is it worth it? Is all, is all this worth it? Peter's going to come to a point where he, where he asks that in a, in, a, in a roundabout way, sort of answering the question that might be there. Have you ever uh, maybe went to a restaurant that everybody raves about? You have the food, you eat it, you start going through it, and then you get the bill, and you're like, was this really worth it? <laughs> you get to the point where, you know, it's, it's going to be the amusement park day. You're going to take the family. You go all day. And by the time you do the amusement park tickets and you do the food and you do the drinks throughout the day to hydrate and then you get to the end of the day after playing all the games and you're like, was this really worth it? Maybe you're not an amusement park person. Maybe you're, I just want to travel the country, go around, I want to do all those different things. And in the midst of your traveling, your car breaks down and it's a lot more expensive. And you're like, was this really worth it? We often evaluate our life situations and wonder if all the enduring all of the paying for things, all the enjoying things, is it really worth it? And even as believers, we find ourselves in those situations. We find ourselves dedicated to Christ and doing good and trying to uh, wonder sometimes, is it worth it? Is it worth the, the slander, the opposition, the suffering, the difficulties that we face at work, at school? We wonder, is it worth it in the community when we're ridiculed for our beliefs and where we stand with Jesus Christ? The believers in Asia Minor were at the point where they have been exiled. They're facing this rising stress and the suffering for their, their living for Christ. And remember when Peter talks about suffering, he's talking about that which we are enduring because of our Christian walk. He's not just talking about the everyday trials and difficulties and things that come into our life. He's specifically talking about we are living for Christ and because of our life and doing good and living righteously for Christ, we face these difficulties, these sufferings that come into our life. And so we ask ourselves, is it really worth it? Is it worth us as believers constantly trying to live righteously in this world when we know that the result could end up being persecution? It could end up being suffering. It could end up being mockery, slander, loss of a job, uh, maybe demotion, or maybe not getting the pay raise because of how we've chosen to act with our Christian ethic, with our Christian morality in our life. Is it really worth it? Peter's just went through a number of passages telling us how to live, what our attitude should be like in, in chapters 2 and into chapter 3. And so now Peter comes to verses 13 and following, and he's going he's to help us to understand that. 
he reminds us at the end of verse 12. You remember he talks about the result of living this way, that uh, the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. So the Lord has promised favor to the righteous, to those who are doing good. And he said the result is there's going to be punishment to the evildoer. And he flows right into that. And the logical conclusion of that thought is verse 13 is almost proverbial. It's almost this idea that if you're going, uh, if you're doing good and you're living with the right attitude, then usually nobody's going to bother you. That's the general thought. Look what he says in verse uh, 13. And who is he that will harm you if you are followers of that which is good? Now you can, you can look at that and say, well, is he saying, well, sarcastically, everybody's just going to harm you? We know that's not the case because we don't always go through harm when we live righteously. But Peter's saying the normal, the normal way of life is if you're doing good, you're doing it with the right attitude, you're treating people with respect and courtesy and humility, then usually no one's going to bother you. But Peter also understands there are times that that's not the case. That's like any proverb. Proverbs are a general principle, but we know there are often, there can be exceptions to those. So he says that in verse 13, who's going to harm, uh, who's going to harm someone deeply committed to right living? That's, that's the thought he's saying. The word follower here is someone who has a zealous commitment to something, and in this case, to the Lord. So in following that which is good, doing what is right. Under normal circumstances, when you're doing right, you should not expect pain. You should not expect harm. You're not going to be expected that to be coming your way. That's why sometimes it hurts so much because you're like, I'm doing this for your benefit. I'm helping. I'm trying to do a good job as an employer, and I'm doing things ethically and right. And then the boss comes in and says, I don't like the way you're doing it. You're fired. And it's like, but I was doing everything the right and ethical way, the way that I should be doing it. And then it, that, that hurts. Peter's not naive. He's not looking and saying, if you do good, and if you live righteously, then you're never going to have any harms or any difficulties or any problems in your life. He's looking and he says, there are going to be times where it's there. There are going to be times where we face suffering. So he's going to then take the next couple verses and clarify this thought. He's going to clarify and say, if you do end up in a situation where you're living righteously, where you're doing good, but you face a situation now where harm is coming against you, what should happen? How do you handle it? Why is it there? Why would, we, why would we live? He understands and wants us to understand that suffering from a biblical perspective will help us not only to endure suffering, but to also realize that identifying with Christ and identifying this through suffering, it's worth it. It is absolutely worth it, Peter is going to drive us to. So let's look at what he says. He gives us a perspective on suffering. And in verse 14, he's going he's gonna to bring out, he says, but and if you suffer for righteous, uh, righteousness sake, happy are you. Right. <laughs> it's like, at first you're like, I'm going to be happy if, if suffering comes. But look what he says. He says, we should expect suffering. It's part and parcel of the Christian's life. It is going to, for the Christian who is living righteously, suffering is part of our life. It's the result of, now Peter clarifies very specifically here, on account of, he says, that, that if you suffer for, the word for there is on account of, as the result of righteousness sake. Peter's not saying if you're going to suffer because you're living sinfully and you're going to get your just, just reward, so to speak. He's saying, you're living righteously. We're living to, for the glory of God, and suffering comes. 
It is, that is what he's talking about. That's the result of it. Suffering does not bypass Christians. He's talking to believers. He's saying, but if you, believers. So there is, the, there is the dynamic here that says, as believers, if we're living righteously, there is a strong possibility in this world that at some point, maybe often, maybe not, but we should expect that we are not exempt from the biblical suffering that is called upon us that we will face and we will endure in this life. But it's important to understand that suffering is not punishment necessarily, but it's a sign of blessing. That, that phrase, happy are you, it's the, it's the Greek word makarios. It's the word that Jesus uses in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the, blessed are the. You know, it's not just the, the hey, we're happy. But there is a blessing from God as we go through divine punishment or divine suffering, as we are facing it, as God allows it into our lives, because we are living on the account of or for righteousness sake, Peter is saying that is a blessed thing. It's not a punishment from God. So he's driving at this idea, since no one can ultimately harm you, that was verse 12, the evildoer will be dealt with. Those who are doing, living righteously, there will be blessing there. And since suffering is a sign of God's blessing, then as we come into suffering, how should we respond? What should we be doing when that, that enters into our lives? Peter says, don't be afraid. Don't be troubled. But instead, sanctify the Lord God in your heart. So he looks and he tells us, don't, don't fear. Don't be afraid of what the unbelievers can do to you. He says, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Fear is forbidden for the believers in the, in the suffering. God is telling us, if you're living for righteousness and suffering is coming upon you, don't be afraid of that. Continue to live righteously. Don't back away. Don't live in fear and terror and trembling at them, but literally do not fear the fear of them. Fear not their intimidations, their threats. If you don't do this, you, you hold by your righteousness because that is what God has called us to do. That is how God has called us to live. And the sufferings that are coming from the outside, the oppressor coming against us for living righteously is a sign of God's divine blessing in our lives. So don't be distressed by them. Don't be troubled, anxious, worried about them, but rather trust that the Lord is maybe allowing these into our lives for maybe purging, to make us to refine us, allowing them into our lives in order to be a testimony to others. But Peter says, don't be afraid. Don't be troubled. Don't be anxious over that. We are not to fear the suffering that is administered by unbelievers when we are living righteously. But rather, we are to have faith in the Lord and in the vindication of the believer. That in the end, we will have victory. We will be victorious through Jesus Christ. That in the end, God will make things and set things right in their proper order. It may not be here on this earth, but we know ultimately our hope is that God will set everything in order because he says he will. And the passage is going to unfold that as we get to the end of the, this passage we're going to see the vindication. We're going to see that the one, the ultimate suffer, the one who suffered the ultimate suffering was vindicated. And we're going to, we're going to see that. So then he goes, he says, don't be afraid. Don't be troubled. But on the contrary, on the flip side, when those sufferings come, when non-believers or the, someone who's coming against you 
is, is pressing down, causing difficulties because of your righteous living, he says, continue to set apart Christ as Lord in your life. Verses 15 and 16, very familiar verses, especially if you like reading in the field of apologetics or defending the faith. But sanctify the Lord God in your heart and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you of a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. This choice to set apart Christ as Lord is a personal decision. It is not one that I can force upon you. It is not one that we as staff can declare for this church that everybody who comes in here will be set apart. That would be a desire we would have. But this is a personal choice that we as individuals must make to sanctify or to honor the Lord, honor Christ as the Lord of our lives, to show him a deep respect, a reverence that results in, in obedience in our lives. We, we look... And it's not only, it's a personal decision, but look, look what he says. Sanctify the Lord God where? In your hearts. And we, we can sometimes throw that phrase around, you know, ask Jesus in your heart. Sanctify the Lord God in your heart. What is Peter talking about? The heart is the origin of all human behavior. It is the idea of out of the abundance of the heart, that's where our words come from. That's why we say what we say. As a man thinks in his heart, what, what's the rest of the verse say? So is he. It is the idea of out of this, this place, everything else in our life is, it radiates from. So as we are told to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts, we are supposed to set apart Christ as Lord in all aspects of our life. Even when the suffering is coming upon us, we don't set God in a box. We don't put him to the side, but rather we continue to say, I'm going to live for righteousness. I'm going to live for my holy and wonderful and gracious God. And I'm going to continue to set him apart as Lord for uh, the heart flows. The salvation, it's, it's not, this is not a salvation cho- choice to get saved here. This is Peter talking to believers, put it in the context, believers who are facing suffering, and they're battling through. So it's not them getting saved to sanctify Christ, as, uh, make Christ the Lord of your life here. It's the idea of putting Christ as the hub. When you look at a, when you look at a, a bicycle wheel, all the spokes coming through, you take that hub out of the middle, that bicycle tire is going to fall apart. It is good for nothing. The hub of our life is to be Christ. Everything else radiates from that. You pull Christ out, it doesn't function. For believers, we pull Christ out of our lives, we don't function correctly. So Peter is driving at us and saying, in every area of your life, as you sanctify, you set apart Christ as Lord of your life, you make him the priority in every dynamic, even when facing suffering. Though it's a personal decision, notice in the context, it's not a private one. Yes, it is a decision we make, but it says that you sanctify the Lord and be ready to give an answer to every man that asks you. Well, what are they, how are they going to ask you if they're not seeing it? They're seeing you live this out in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of difficulty. They're seeing you live a Christ-centered life. And now because of that, they go to you and they ask you, what is this all about? That happened this week with, uh, at, at my dad's funeral. There was a gentleman who came 
And he said, you know, I, I didn't really know Art. I only knew a little bit of him. He was, he's my, my nephew's coaches, baseball coach. He's like, all I knew about him was that he was really loud and yelled a lot at the games. And as his dad got older, he, he liked to very much yell at the games. But he's like, everybody seemed to love him. All these kids loved him. All these people, like, they were always around him and talking to him. And I just would always see him graciously treat people other than at the baseball moment. And he's like, I just had to find out what this guy was all about. What, what was it? And so he comes to the service, never been darkened the door of a church before, but he's like, I just need to know, can you tell me what, what was he all about? No, I don't want to do that. Of course, you know, we want to, we want to talk about and have the opportunity to share the hope. My, not my dad at that time, but us as kids to be able to talk about the hope that was in him. That's the idea, that as we're living our lives day by day, hour by hour, people come and they start to ask us of that hope. So it, yes, it's a personal decision to set up our Christ as Lord, but it should not be just private where I just do it. I live this out in every dynamic of my life. Christ is to be seen. He is to be observed because you will be, and, and he may even be challenged. That's the idea here when he says, and be ready to give an answer to everyone that asks you of a reason. The, the idea here is they're challenging maybe your belief system, but they're challenging you, asking, coming to you and saying, tell me about this hope. Tell me about the way you're living in the midst of this suffering. How can you do this? How can you navigate these dark waters with such great peace? And Peter's saying, you be ready at those points to give an answer. These challenges, are, they come in the informal. This isn't a court setting. It's not that idea. Peter's saying in the everyday of life, when your coworkers ask, be ready. Don't, don't shy away. If your coworkers give you that, that moment to step through the door, step through or kick the door in and just keep pushing through, share the gospel. Take those opportunities. Our hope in crisis and our Christian testimony are to become evident to unbelievers. And that's what people, think about the context. These believers are in exile. And now they're living in such a way that people are beginning to ask. They're going through difficult times and people are beginning to ask. They're going through sufferings and people are asking. In those moments, they may be some of the hardest times for us as believers. You may be weeping, you may be suffering, you may be battling through some of the hardest things in your life. But for the sake of the gospel, when somebody asks, I need to, to step back and say, okay, God is using this difficulty in my life at this moment to share the gospel. And that's what Peter is driving us to, to be ready to always, not just in the perfect setting, but he says, always, being always ready. He's talking to people in adversity. But in the midst of adversity, sometimes we don't want to talk to people about the gospel. Plan now. Prepare yourself to be able to share that gospel. Setting apart Christ as Lord, it calls us to be prepared, to be ready to give that defense, that we're ready. The defense is, and notice, this, this really challenged me. It's not a defense of my actions. Look what he says. He says, you be ready always to give an answer to everyone that asks you of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. It's not, a, it's not looking and saying, well, I'm going to give you my reason, my 15 reasons as to why I don't believe in this. And you believe. They're looking, Peter's saying, you be prepared to share the gospel. The hope that one day Christ is coming back, that one day I will be in heaven with him. Because that is the hope that Christ is going to claim his own and bring them to heaven. 
We take that future expectation that we are guaranteed, and we need to be ready to defend the gospel, to share the gospel. It's not just calling us to be ready to, to just give all of the defenses, and we should still be able to articulate defense of creation, defense of the existence of God, defense of is Jesus Christ Lord, and, and all those dynamics. But Peter is specifically telling us here in the midst of hard times, prepare yourself for those moments so that when someone comes and asks you of the hope that you have, you're ready to share the gospel. And you can do it. Peter's, Peter's not talking to anyone in particular. He's not writing to a pastor. He's writing to a number of congregants, so to speak, who have been exiled, everyday Christians. And he's saying you can be and should be prepared to share the gospel, even in the middle of, in the middle of your sufferings. And uh, hope, is, hope is our future-oriented confidence, our expectation. It's because of our faith in Christ. And so our, the inner hope of these individuals, it stood out in society, and it should stand out in our society as we go through those hard times. The word that's used here, and this is what I've talked about apologetics, that's the word defense. You'll hear that word, and, and this is like the, called the linchpin verse of apologetics because it reminds us that we need to be prepared to, to give that defense. Setting apart Christ as Lord, it requires us to be prepared. That means this. The gospel, it's defensible. We can absolutely defend the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not some crazy story that's just out there. I I hope not because most everybody in here, as far as I can see, you've put your hope and faith in the gospel. And so it it is defensible. We can be prepared to do that. You don't have to be a great apologist, but you should develop a grasp on the essentials of the faith and have the ability to explain to others what you believe is true. That's why part of the reason why we did the, the foundation series, to give us some of that common, that common theology, just the, the understandings. Even going through that first chapter again would be a good benefit for you to say, what is, this, what is the gospel about? What is salvation about? Giving myself those, those, those tools that are necessary and, and having myself ready to be able to, to defend the faith. Now, when we get into that idea of defending the faith, I don't know about you, but when someone starts attacking my faith, I can get a little mama bear. Papa bear, I know, yeah. But how does mama bear defend her cubs? With a vengeance, with a hard stuff, like you're not, you don't want to be there. You want to get out of Dodge as quickly as possible. Defending the gospel brings about the opportunity for us as believers who are firmly committed to the word of God, who are firmly committed to the gospel, it brings about the possibility for us to become very harsh, arrogant, and disrespectful to people. And Peter understood that. Because look at how Peter tells us to present the gospel. He doesn't say become this dogmatic, arrogant, uh, jerk's the only word that's coming to mind, so I'll use it, um, person who treats, treats the other, I, I don't agree. I may not agree with their polit- political position. I may not agree with their social position. I may not agree with their lifestyle choices. And I'm going to, to, I would be able to defend that. But when it comes to the gospel, I have a responsibility. How does Peter say to do this? He says, come at your defense in a pleasant way. A pleasant defense. We are to give a defense with meekness and fear. Not with arrogant, in-your-face, kick you in the head, knock you down, drag you. 
Would I like to do that to everybody? I would love to knock them out and drag them to heaven with me. Absolutely. Because I, then they would realize I was right. But I can't do that. I have to come, according to Scripture here, with meekness, with a, hum, a humble, a gentle spirit. Not one that says, I am right and you are wrong. I am right and you are wrong. That's true. When you're holding to the gospel of the word of God, it's true. This is, this is there. But Peter says, come with that attitude. Come with respect for the challenger and a reverence for God. Do it with fear. Having that reverence for God that says, I'm going to share this because God wants me to, but I'm also going to do it in a respectful manner that if that person doesn't get saved right at that moment, they still would like to talk to me. I don't want to burn the bridge. I want to defend the gospel, share the gospel, do it in a meek and a gentle and a respectful way so that even down the road, they might, they might reject right now, but they know that, that I still did it in a way that, that was, treated them with some dignity because they are uh, made in the image of God. I still have a responsibility to treat them that way. So I'm to, to, to treat them that way. I'm to live righteously and answering uh, respectfully allows me to have then a clear conscience. Look in verse 16, it says, having a good conscience that whereas they speak to you as evil, uh, speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. So Peter says, do it in this way and will allow you as well to have this good conscience before them. That as you live righteously before them, as you treat them with respect, you're going to know that when you walk away, even if they reject the gospel, that you did the gospel justice, that you treated them with respect, and that possibly down the road there's still a door open to minister to the individual who asked you, who was wondering about the gospel. So we come about defending the faith. We come about in the midst of suffering, taking our eyes sometimes off of ourselves, especially when people come to us and ask about this hope that is within us. By operating this way, our behavior and our words will speak volumes to individuals. And they'll come to us and they'll be, they'll, they'll be ready. And Peter is convinced that this truth will prevail because what does he say in the verse? That they're speaking evil against you, but because you've done it this way and you've lived righteously having this good, con- uh, con- uh, this good conscience, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation. That they're going to come to a realization in this life or the next that you weren't doing evil. You were living righteously for the Lord. That the gospel that you were sharing was because you believed in it. And it was the hope that that individual needed. Uh, One writer said it this way, a Christian should not attempt to ram the truth down someone's throat or to speak patronizingly or critically to them. Our witness must not attempt to overpower the person with the force of human personality or aggressiveness, but trust the Holy Spirit to quietly persuade the listener to come to them with passion, absolutely. To come to them with a fervor that says you desperately need this. More than, more than you may even realize at this moment. And yet to look at them and say, I'm going to treat you with respect. I'm going to show you worth and dignity. I'm not going to treat you like a buffoon, like an idiot, like somebody that I'm upset with, that's somebody I'm harsh against, but I'm going to treat you with respect. 
And I'm going to share with you the love of Christ because you desperately, desperately need that. And so Peter challenges us to be living that way and to not shy away from sharing, but to share that gospel, but to do it appropriately. To do it in a way that adorns the gospel of Jesus Christ. That adorns our great Savior. Because as they see us and how we may treat them, that's their picture of Jesus Christ. And if I am to set apart Christ as Lord in my life and then I treat them like, like dirt and I belittle them and I berate their anything they may believe in and tear them to shreds in a harsh and mean way, that's reflecting how they view Christ. But I'm to set apart Christ. I'm to present the gospel with gentleness, with meekness, with reverence, with humility. As I set apart Christ as Lord, I have to understand that there is a purpose for this. And that's where, that's where Peter's driving in verse 16. That when they speak evil against you, that when they slander you, these verbal attacks in the public arena, and there's truth that when verbal attacks get escalated, it could become physical. It may not be far behind. In our, in our society where we're at at this current moment, not necessarily always the case. But do we not see verbal escalations more and more escalating into physical attacks and assaults in, in, our, in our country? We see that happening in public arenas. And that may very well soon come to our private lives, our private sectors, our business places. And yet Peter says, continue to live righteously for God. But when it happens, when they speak evil against you, you continue to live righteously, having a good conscience, answering with meekness and humility and reverence to both God and the individual. And the accusations that are there, remember, it's because you're living correctly. It's not because you're being a holy or an unholy terror in your workplace. It's because you're living righteously. But then if these false accusations are made against us, or against you in the workplace, or in your community, or in your neighborhood, and it happens. And Peter's looking and telling us, hey, continue to do this with a purpose. The result of the Christian living, right. Living holy, living righteously, living with the good, the good conscience, is that the accuser will be humiliated. They will be ashamed, as the King James says. And notice he says, that falsely accuse you, you know they're falsely accusing you. I may know they're falsely accusing you. They truly believe in their heart of hearts they're doing the right thing. But you and I have the responsibility, even in the harsh, unsettling times, to live righteously. So that when they come to the point where they're humiliated. Now, the question is, is this in their lifetime that they will be humiliated or in the day of judgment? Uh, People go back and forth different, different ways. I personally tend to think that it's the idea of the day of judgment, that they will be put to shame, it says. Not that they are being, but that they will. Not, and I, I understand that could be in their future life. But Peter has this constant look of future expectation, future glory, future dynamics. But also look back in verse, chapter 2, verse 12. What, is, what does he say here? Having your conversation, look at how similar verse 12 is to verse 16 of chapter 3. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. 
you have this dynamic here where Peter says there are going to be some who are going to see your good works and they're going to honor God. They're going to be saved because of their accusations against you as an evildoer, but you continue to live righteously. You continue to speak with reverence to them and they honor God. They get saved. At the end of this, almost the bookend to this, Peter says there are going to be those who are going to accuse you. There are going to be those who slander you and you're going to live righteously and we're going to set apart Christ as Lord, and we're going to answer with, re- with meekness and with reverence, and they're still going to deny. And they're going to then be humiliated by God. The idea is that they're going to be put in their right place, that they are going to not, not enter into heaven because they have rejected Jesus Christ. So I see it as a future judgment. You get the two ends of chapter 2, verse 12, to chapter 3, verse 16, as he's wrapping up and saying, we're going, to, we're going to experience both. It's not a, this is not a magical formula that says, hey, if you're, if you're facing suffering and you live righteously, and then if you do, you answer in the correct way and you share the gospel, then according to verse 12, everybody's going to get saved. Well, if that's the problem in verse 13 uh, of chapter 3, you got to look and say, well, does it mean that everybody's going to then not get saved? Peter's using both and, and reminding us, hey, we don't have total control over who gets saved. What we do have control over in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the slander that comes against us, what we have control over is how we live. What we have control over is how we respond to our accusations. What we have control over is whether or not we share the gospel when that individual asks us, We have control over those things. We cannot control the suffering that comes against us, but we can be prepared to answer those other dynamics. And so we have to to prepare ourselves in that way. Our responsibility is to simply keep answering respectfully. Instead of fearing what unbelievers might do to us, believers are to set apart Christ as Lord in their hearts and respond to others with hope and humility. Why? Why, why should we do that? Because verses 15 and 16 teach us that suffering should be seen as a powerful testimony for believers. Do not look at suffering for righteousness sake as punishment by God, but look for the opportunities when that arises in your life that according to 1 Peter, this is here for a purpose. And God may be giving me an opportunity and I want to be prepared and I want to be ready to be able to share the gospel. And if God allows this suffering into my life, yeah, I'm not going to be chipper about all of it, but I'm going to treat it with the proper attitude. I'm going to come into it and say, how can I be used of God in the midst of the slander? In the midst of the society that is coming against us for those who have these Christian worldviews, this Christian belief, How can I be used of God? Rather than just becoming bitter and enraged against the the world system that is attacking us, look to say, how can I continue to live righteously with Christ as this hub of my life? How can I live in this way that as I live different from this world, I can be prepared to do what God calls me to do, to share the gospel? to defend the faith. And every single person in here can do that because that's what God God calls us to do. 
Edgar Allan Poe had it figured out, and he's not even a good theologian. He said, never, suffer, uh, to, never to suffer would have never been to be, to be blessed. There truly is a blessedness in suffering. Peter looks and says, blessed are you if you're facing this. If you suffer for the evil that you have done, then you're receiving your just rest, retribution. But if you are suffering for good behavior, there is an identification with Christ. Notice the last two words of verse 16. We sometimes skip over these little prepositions. We're just like, all right, he's just finishing it up. But he says, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. Peter is saying that our, our livelihood, the way we live, all of this is coming out of and flowing out of our identification with Christ that we have set him apart, that we have made him and consciously made this personal decision. It's not private. We've made this decision to say, I am going to live for Christ in my business. I'm going to live for Christ at school this week. I'm going to live for Christ when I travel. I'm going to live for Christ in the midst of whatever suffering or hardship that comes. I am going to purposely today choose to set apart Christ as Lord on a daily basis, to wake up tomorrow and say, Lord, help me to set you apart, to put you at the center, to, to hold you in the proper space, and Lord, help that to permeate every dynamic of my life. Help me to be ready to share that gospel. Help me to be ready to tell others about your wonderful love and the hope that is there. And watch how Christ uses us. But that all flows from an identification of being in Christ it is important for us to understand that suffering is not a sign of divine displeasure. Suffering should be part of, seen as part of God's providential plan for us. Verse 17. For it is, it is better. Did you catch that? It is better, if the will of God be so, that you suffer for well-doing than for evil. So he reminds us that suffering can come from doing good, Suffering can come from doing evil. And so he, he highlights, he says, Peter says, if the will of God be so, or if God sees it as necessary to allow you for doing good to, to suffer. And Peter says, God may will your suffering. Now that, that's a hard pill to swallow at times. But sometimes the suffering that occurs in our lives for doing right is allowed by God. It is, if God's will be so. He allows that into, why would he do that? Doesn't he care? I mean, you think about it as a parent, I don't want my kids to suffer at all. You know, I'm not a bulldozer parent by any stretch. You know, there used to be, they talked about helicopter parents, you know, mom would hover, hover, hover. Now the new, the new perspective is called bulldozer parents where they go through and they clear the way for their kids so nothing is ever bumpy, nothing is ever difficult or hard so that they never have to suffer. But we all know that, that going through those hardships in life, they help our kids grow. They, they've helped us. And so, but then we look at God and say, well, why would you let me suffer? Why would you, why would you allow that into my life? Well, because he's not bulldozing your way clear, making it just simple. He's allowing you to grow. And maybe even beyond that, according to the passage and in the context, he's going to be providing an opportunity for you to handle the suffering biblically. And through that, have an amazing opportunity possibly to share the gospel with somebody, 
potentially see them get saved, have the opportunity to disciple them, and see them grow in Jesus Christ. So Peter looks and says, there's truth. Suffering at times is very much part of God's providential plan for us. It could be for a test, a testimony, an evangelistic opportunity, but we must understand that suffering One is not necessarily from God. It can be allowed by God. Peter says, even in chapter 5, verse 8, and we've already seen in chapter 2, verse 12, 3, 16, it could come from Satan. It could come from others. But there are times providentially that God allows it. He wills it. But we must understand this. Suffering may come. If it does, be sure it comes for your righteous deeds. That's what he's saying. It's better that you suffer for well-doing. He's like, why would I want to bring the extra suffering because I'm doing wrong? Because I'm living unrighteously. He says, be sure it comes for your righteous deeds and know that it comes under the control of God who desires your good. It may be a very tough pill to swallow to look and to say, suffering. Suffering should be expected. I don't want to expect it, and yet suffering should. Suffering can be a powerful testimony. And suffering is part of God's providential plan. We, we look at the passage and we understand what God is starting to drive us toward, to understand that suffering is part of our lives as believers. If we're living righteously, we're going to face suffering at some point, potentially down the road somewhere. Some of you may be going through it right now. But we have to get ahead of the game. We have to prepare ourselves now for the future. That when more suffering is potentially heaped upon us, that we know how we're going to enter in with a, with a battle plan that says, I'm going to go in and the people who may be accusing me, who may be coming against me, who may be causing the suffering, I'm going to treat them with dignity, respect, and I'm going to be prepared when I do that to give an answer that I study up on how to share the gospel, that I make that a priority in my life because that's part of what we're about. If we're setting apart Christ as Lord in the center of our lives, and God is saying, if we're living that way, these opportunities are going to come. Let's prepare. Now, I'll go first in a couple weeks because if I go any further, I'm not gonna do any justice to the passage in seven minutes because it's not, it's not going to happen. And I'm not going to even try and dive into, there's, there's, in the next couple verses, I have it on one of the slides, there's like 180 different theological uh, perspectives on these verses. And I'm not going to, don't worry, don't come, don't, don't stay away in a couple weeks. I'm not going through any of them. Okay, we're not going to try even and dive through it. But I want us to just think about how do we sanctify God in our lives? How do we prepare now? for suffering. It truly starts with a hard attitude to look and to say, God, if and when suffering comes in my heart, my life, I hope first that it's because I'm living righteously. And Lord, I ask that you help me to respond correctly when those accusations arise with gentleness with meekness. Let's adorn the gospel in our life. Let's set Christ apart as Lord and let's trust him to take care of us because if you look at the last verse of this chapter, and that's where we'll finish tonight. Look at the last verse. 
he says this, talking about Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of the angels, the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. We'll, we'll, we'll flesh it out more in the future here when we go through this next section. But think about it in the context. Peter is going to use Christ as the perfect example of the one who suffered and did it righteously and suffered for righteousness' sake. That's, that's going to be the next verses. And then he looks and he says, where does he end up? He doesn't end up in the ground, staying there, but he ends up exalted at the right hand of the Father. His, his, the, what seemed like a loss ended up in beautiful vindication. And if we are in Christ, if we are there in him, living righteously, suffering for right, Peter says, you will endure. There will be an ultimate final vindication of the, those who are living righteously. So Peter, Peter doesn't want us to stay down in the dregs and say, oh, suffering is just going to be here forever. He says, in the end, through Jesus Christ and by his power, we'll be vindicated. We will be exalted, just like our Savior was. So let's intentionally seek to live with Christ as the Lord of our lives. Let's intentionally share the gospel and let's do it in a proper and biblical way. So Father God, I pray that you would help us to live with you at the center of our lives in everything we do. Because as we look at it, Lord, we understand in the end, it will be worth it all. It will be worth everything that we face, every, every trial that we have knowing that in the end, when we see your face, we know that it will be worth everything that we've gone through. So help us to do it with grace and dignity. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. I'd like to close with a song tonight that reminds us of this truth, that the suffering we face, it has purpose. It has reason. And we can say, is it worth it? Absolutely, it will be worth it all. So let's sing that together as we close. Of times the day seems long, our trials hard to bear. We're tempted to complain, to murmur and despair. But Christ will soon appear to catch his bride away all tears forever over in God's eternal day it will be worth it all when we see Jesus life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ, one glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase, so bravely run the race, till we see Christ.
Sometimes the sky looks dark with not a ray of light. We're tossed and driven on, no human help in sight, but there is one in hand who knows our deepest cares. Let Jesus solve your problem, just go to him in prayer. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow Thank you so much. Have a blessed and wonderful week and let's set apart Christ as Lord and let's be prepared to give an answer of that wonderful and blessed hope that's within us. Have a great week.